Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 1st. It's March already. Time marches on. Yeah, sorry. And the Olympics are over. One of my guilty pleasures. I am literally a uh, an Olympicaholic, and I'm not willing to go and celebrate recovery to overcome that addiction. Figure it only comes around every couple of years, but ah, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And what we recommend doing is, well, doing the work that the Berean Church did. And that work is to um, compare what people are saying in God's name Compare the gospel that they're preaching to what the gospel says it is in the in the Word of God, and when you do that, then and only then will you uh, be able to discern whether or not somebody's telling you the truth. And nobody's ex- exempt from this exercise. Not me. Not the Apostle Paul. Not angels. Nobody. We are all subject to God's Word. God's Word is authoritative. And if you read uh, if read the uh, Epistle of Jude, uh, false teachers are the ones who reject authority, reject authority. All right, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we've got all kinds of interesting stuff lined up. And one of those times, again, where I feel like just I'm not <clears throat> program prep came up. Well, it was a little quicker than uh, than I. Uh, well, it just seemed to go by quicker than I would have liked it. So uh, we got an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. We'd like to read that. And then I've got uh, Brian McLaren got some free ink today in the uh, – well, actually, it's over over the weekend. He got some free ink at the Christian Post. And the headline reads, uh, Brian McLaren, the kingdom of God is not about me. And what we're going to do is I'm going to read to you that news article. And you know what? I'm kind of getting sick and tired of uh, Brian McLaren. And I know that's kind of a <clears throat> sassy way of putting it. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. But you know what? Here's the deal. I don't think he knows what the what the term kingdom of God even means. I, I'm convinced by the way he uses that phrase that he he has no concept of what it even means biblically. I think he's just pouring his own ideas into the phrase. And so what we're going to do today is I'm going to be reading to you the uh, parables that Jesus taught in the book of Matthew 
that describe the kingdom of God. We'll just do a little comparative work here, see if uh, McLaren even sounds like he knows what he's talking about, especially in light of the fact that his new book basically denies practically every single cardinal doctrine of Christianity that you can believe. And plus, we've got a wonderful statement in here that McLaren gave. You'll, you'll, you'll have to read it, hear it to believe it. And then uh, I thought I would just springboard from that into uh, another article from Shane. You know what, though? I've, there's something I forgot. But right before McLaren, we're going to get to uh, – we're, oh, we're going to be looking at the uh, false signs and wonders of extreme prophetic. I've got a, a Patricia King segment I want you to hear. And uh, we're going to be asking the question, what's, uh, what, what purpose do these signs and wonders that this woman is uh, talking about have to do? We'll do Brian McLaren, and then we'll, we'll probably get to Shane Claiborne today. And then tomorrow, if we, ha- if we have time, we'll do it today, but I'm just not thinking we're going to get there. Uh, there's a uh, – <clears throat> I apologize. This is what the headline reads. It says, Breast Theology Uplifted at Union Seminary. Now, we probably won't get the – to this today, but there's a uh, lecturer who's going to be speaking at uh, Union Theological Seminary uh, very shortly, and apparently she's um, under the impression that Christianity's, uh, the the cross was not the symbol of Christianity early on. Instead, it was a uh, a lactating virgin. Anyway, uh, we'll talk. That may, we may not get to that today. It might be tomorrow, and uh, I'll try to use all the grown-up words I possibly can so that my listeners don't have to explain too much to the younger ears that may be listening. Oh, good night. What has the world come to? All right, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and uh, and we'll, we'll just kind of have to see how it all goes. So... Uh... Time for some email. We got an email from Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley. Fine Christian brother and pastor from across the pond. He actually preaches the gospel. We've reviewed two of his sermons here at Fighting for the Faith. And they were great. (laughs) All right. All right, enough of the uh, email music here. Pastor Charmley writes, he says, Dear Chris, he says, I just finished listening to the review of the box sermon. Yeah, that was a miserable sermon, wasn't it? The uh, Apparently the pastor there suffered from boxophobia. I, I think a lot of seeker-driven guys, they suffer from boxophobia. And uh, it's it's rather sad. They might want to go and, and, you know, maybe see a counselor or somebody about that, uh, you know, because boxophobia apparently could just completely wreck your life. And and you're preaching, too. Anyway, uh, we continue. He says, that was really, really bad, especially annoying when I was listening on a Sunday night after preaching two 35-minute two tightly structured sermons. Firstly, on Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 52, and then secondly, on Galatians chapter 3, 19 through 25, having spent hours preparing each. I feel like the box sermon is an insult to true pastors everywhere. The thing is, frankly, a crime. <clears throat> you know, I, I agree with you, Pastor Charmley. I agree that these sermons are a crime. That the, this is this is pastoral malpractice. And uh, the it, here's the deal. I mean, what I don't understand is that none of us, you, me, or anybody would included, would want their bodies being touched by. A guy who just went out and got some physician's book, 
you know, if, if for instance, if they sold, uh, if it, let's say Time Life, you know, they, they make videos and books available. They have Time Life books on how to fix this and fix that in your house, and Time Life books on home repair and you know, stuff like that. Who, I mean, who would want to go to a doctor who had uh, basically, um, you know, let's say has the equivalent of having just watched the Time Life series on home surgery, you know, basically do-it-yourself surgery. You know, nobody would go to that doctor. If you, if the doctor isn't board certified, ha, does, hasn't graduated from a respectable uh, institution when it comes to medicine and, you know, didn't and didn't have a, a, a good internship or whatever, not, none of us would ever want to go to that doctor. We would fear for our lives. Okay, and uh, and you know, the, there's quack doctors out there that are uh, basically killing people with their quack remedies. In the same vein, why on earth, why on earth are people going to churches where the pastor obviously is a complete dolt when it comes to? Understanding the scriptures, having been trained in doctrine and theology, be, uh, trained in basic preaching, I mean, even trained in the doc- basic doctrines of the Christian faith. I mean, this is pastoral malpractice. Now, I want you to think about this. When it comes to doctors, as, as terrible as somebody dying from a, a, a doctor in, who engages in malpractice is, that is not nothing is nothing compared to uh the eternal consequences of a of a pastor who is basically engaging in pastoral malpractice because here's the deal a doctor who you know does the wrong thing to you surgically he might end up like you know accidentally amputating your left leg when he was supposed to amputate your right leg i mean things like that happen or he might accidentally do something or mix some uh, some you know prescription drug combination that that might kill you but that's not the worst thing that can happen to you death is not the worst thing we're all going to die someday if the lord tarries i mean here's the deal should the Lord tarry, you know, uh, f- for the next 100 years, 200 years, 500 years? I don't know when he's coming back. I mean, quite frankly, he hasn't decided, he hasn't circled me in on that little uh, tidbit of information. And I don't think there's anything in the scriptures that would indicate that there's any chance whatsoever that Christ is going to circle me in and say, oh, by the way, I'm coming back on X, Y, and Z date on such and such a year. It's just not going to happen. But should the Lord tarry, you know, for a hundred, hundred years, two hundred years, hundred years from now, we're all dead. Everybody listening to this podcast broadcast on Pirate Christian Radio, uh, within twenty, thirty years of its original broadcasting date, um, we're all dead now. You know, hundred years out, we're dead. That's it, dead, gone. You know, we are. We're worm food. We're pushing up daisies. You know, we're we're fertilizing oak trees down at the root level. It, you understand what I'm saying? We're all gone, at least physically. But see, physical death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. The worst death that can happen to us is the second death that Scripture warns us about, and that's having basically us being thrown into the lake of fire. It's eternal damnation and punishment, you know, under God's wrath. That's the worst thing that can happen to us. So here's the deal. When it comes to our physicians and doctors, we don't let anyone touch us, you know, who does who isn't qualified to do so. And yet that's just physical death. 
But when it comes to spiritual health, when it comes to pastoral issues that deal with eternal consequences, it's obvious that what we have basically right now is a rash of guys who have no business being in a pulpit whatsoever. They're not qualified. They're preaching false doctrine, and they're engaging in pastoral malpractice, and it is a crime. Pastor Charmley's right. This is a crime. And my question for you guys out there is why are y'all putting up with it? Why are you allowing these crimes to be perpetrated from your pulpits? By the way, God himself eventually will do something about this crime, and it's not going to be pretty. And the thing we don't want that to happen. What we want for these guys is for them to repent, to repent and be forgiven for their pastoral malpractice. Sorry, I'm off on a high horse here. <clears throat> Uh, Pastor Charmley continues, says, one of our elders has been reading John Owen on the pastoral office and shared with us in the vestry before the evening service that Owen's first point is that the pastor must be able to preach and feed the sheep and that a man who cannot preach the word should not be in a pulpit. Amen. Eddie Jones should resign and take a job selling insurance or something. I agree. At least if he was selling insurance, he wouldn't be sending people to hell. Any man who uses dynamite, uses the dynamite, think is frankly lazy. Last night, I had to refer to the Greek using words uh, antinomian and uh, pedagogu. Both need to be explained in English. The first, of course, is a theological word. The second is in the text. And the dynamite thing is not explaining the word. It's actually creating confusion. And structure is vital. Paul, preaching at Antioch and Pisidia, had three points in his sermon. A sermon with structure has a progression and a flow. A sermon with structure is, without a structure, is a nasty mess. The structure is the skeleton, and a man without a skeleton is in serious trouble. Yeah, I agree. Any guy without a skeleton is, well, that would be kind of awful, wouldn't it? Y'all remember the Far Side cartoons? One of my favorite Far Side cartoons was... Uh, it it sh- it it showed the uh, uh, the chickens living at the boneless chicken ranch. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't seen that, it, it looks like a bunch of dead chickens lying around. But actually, they're, they're they're all alive. But they're boneless. You can't do anything without any structure or a skeleton. Funnily enough, though, funnily enough, that's interesting. Uh, we have had a young man come to our church bookshop from one of these seeker type churches, complaining about shallow teaching and the abuse of the law. Amen. After one of our church Bible studies, he was extremely appreciative. Why? Because the minister was actually leading the people into the word. Why was the minister doing that? Because it's my job to feed the people with the word of God. A member of Bethel who has been to all our Bible studies since I came here uh, will have heard the best part of the whole systematic theology. Christ-centered and Bible-based. And why? Because the elders were looking for a minister to teach the Bible. Oh, and the elders are concerned for the church and for good preaching and teaching. They want to hold the pastor accountable, and this pastor wants to be held accountable. Amen. So are we, uh, so are we not reaching out? Well, I was in the city center preaching the other day and ended up spending 90 minutes talking with a Mormon and answering his questions. The thing is, we are actually reaching out with the gospel. I mean, I know we're old-fashioned, but isn't it just a bit silly to get all these people into a so-called church and then only mention the gospel in passing? Excuses given, 
while most American Christians are educated beyond their level of obedience. My response, isn't this meant to be a church for the unchurched? You know, for people who are not from Christian backgrounds, we have a motto that governs the pulpit at Bethel. Sir, we would see Jesus. That's right. <laughs> that's from the Gospel of John, by the way. Uh, Sir, we would see Jesus. That's from the. I think that's from the Gospel of John. You know, this really obscure passage in the Gospel of John. You have these uh, Greeks showing up, and they basically they want to see Jesus, and so uh, that that's the the mention of it. And I think that's what that's uh, referring to. You see, the the key to obedience is looking to Christ. One of our people has relatives who go uh, go to one of these relevant churches that teaches practical sermons, and he complains that the result is that the is that the man's business is no longer uh, is that is that the man's business no longer reflect Christian principles. Teaching principles for Christian living undermines Christian living. Great point, Pastor Charlie. Good points. Good email. Uh, yes, I completely agree with you. Teaching Christian principles actually undermines Christian living. <sighs> Great point. All right, moving along. All right, looking at my time here, figuring out how I'm going to manage this. What we're going to do right now? Hey, what, let's do. Uh, <clears throat> let's do the Patricia King uh, segment here. Ah, <sighs> yes. What wonderful music that is. Whenever you hear that music, it means that something strange is coming down the pike. Ah, yes. Now, I've got a question for you. Patricia King is, um, well, she's like the gift that keeps on giving here at Fighting for the Faith. And we we cover stuff that she's uh, said or says on a fairly regular basis. Now, I'm going to ask this question. Okay. By the way, the name of this particular video on the Extreme Prophetic website is entitled Gemstones After Cleaning. Now, this, Patricia King's going to lead off with this very fractured fairy tale that she's going to tell about a woman who apparently found six diamonds on the floor of her house and they all came from God. Now, as silly as this story is going to sound to you, I'm going to ask the question, what is the purpose of conveying these stories about these miracles? Are they true miracles or false miracles? Well, let's listen in, and, and uh, we'll see if we can divine what's really going on here. Over the last number of years, we've been visited from time to time with the appearance of gemstones in meetings, in our homes, sometimes in people's beds, sometimes they find them in their shoes. It's just been amazing. Whenever a sign and a wonder uh, takes place, you have to inquire of the Lord and say, what is this about? I wonder what it's about. Give me some... That's a great question. What is this about, Patricia? Because here's the deal, okay? When you listen to this woman preaching and teaching, it's clear she's a heretic. This is not a Christian woman. This is a false prophetess that we're dealing with here. We're dealing with somebody who teaches a false gospel and is engaging in, you know, basically teaching false religion, you know, that's, that has Christianish words to it. So what is the purpose of these so-called miracles? Do we need to believe that they're true? Well, let's look, let's continue. I'm understanding and uh, and and he will. And every sign has a meaning to it, but every sign, every wonder causes us to stand in awe when we realize that it's from God. 
There's been times in meetings where people have found little gems like diamonds or, or rubies, emeralds, um, under their feet or by, by a stool or, you know, under their seat, whatever. But we're going to see a clip from one of our team members, Gretchen Rodriguez. We're going to see a, a clip uh, where she shares of how her and the girls and their family found gemstones in their house. I think you're really going to enjoy it. it can, they can show up anywhere. I wonder what God wants to do in your house. I wonder he wants to manif- what he wants to manifest there. You know. Okay, <clears throat> I wonder what God wants to manifest in your house. Hopefully repentance uh, from my sins and trust in Christ. Um, <clears throat> okay, so notice a little hook there. I wonder what he wants to manifest in your house. I think that's the purpose of these little miracle stories, don't you? It's to basically, I mean, we're not talking about God having you know, you know thumbtacks rain down on your house or you finding uh heavenly broken glass we're we're talking about you finding diamonds and gemstones i mean could you imagine what would i mean how much how much do you think a a, a diamond from heaven is worth Let's continue. One of the things I know about Gretchen and Len and their, their children is that they're always expectant that God's going to move. And I think that expectancy opens um, um, a door for God to come in. And so sometimes... What? So having a, uh, basically an expectancy opens the door for God to come in? Notice the subtle but very real works righteousness, self-righteousness, legalistic religion that's being taught there. Now, if you want to have diamonds show up in your house from heaven, then what you need to have, you need to foster within yourself uh, basically a, you know, an expectancy that God's going to do something. Because God won't do it until you do have an expectancy that he is going to do things like that. We get what we expect, but uh, enjoy Gretchen and enjoy the testimony of the gemstones. Hi, I'm Gretchen Rodriguez with Extreme Prophetic, and I have a fun testimony to share with you of what the Lord has done for my daughter and I. I had just cleaned the front of our house totally, watched it actually dry after mopping because my daughter wanted to go outside and play. <laughs> so I know there was nothing on the floor at all. But when I walked back through that room to put the vacuum cleaner away, I saw something shiny. And when I bent down to pick it up, it was a diamond. I was really, really excited about it. And a little bit later, my daughter and I were in that same room. And I was walking through, and I saw something shiny again. I thought, no way. I bend down to pick it up, and it was another diamond. My daughter looks down by her feet, and she says, Mommy, I found one too. And then she looks by her other foot, and she found another one. I found another one, and then I found another one after that. So it was a total of six diamonds we found that day. A little while later... Uh, by the way, in the video, they're showing these six diamonds. Now, here's a question I i mean, I have. Okay, listen. Six diamonds? And these things look like... I mean, she held one up in her hand. They look like they're a good 1.4, 1.5 carats apiece. I mean, we're talking some serious coinage here if you were to turn these things or sell these things. Um, have they had an independent gemologist confirm that these are actual diamonds? I mean, it, it, seriously. I mean, if you found six diamonds in your house... 
which is to sit there and go, wow, that's neat that God did that because God is so neat because I have an expectation of neatness from God, these neato things that God's going to do. I find this uh, the the story to be beyond credulity at this point because there's just certain um, behavior that we would all engage in uh, that would that seems to be missing here. Uh, the behavior would be uh, how much are these things worth? Uh, did I have somebody? You know, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, if I I found six diamonds on my in my house, you know, first of all, are they real? Secondly, how much are they worth? Third, um, did the Pink Panthers accidentally come through my house the other night while the, while trying to evade the police and accidentally drop these diamonds? I mean, seriously, six diamonds, uh, you know, at, you know, a carrot plus a piece? <clears throat> Something's off here. Something's really, 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 really off. I was just thinking, you know, I hope that it didn't fall from one of my daughter's clothes. We have we have three daughters, and sometimes they have little jewels in their clothes or in their accessories, and we try to keep them out of the house for this very reason. So I just went through everything that they had worn that day, shoes, accessories, clothes, and the day before, just to make sure it didn't fall from there. And there was absolutely no reason in the natural that diamonds would be falling all over my floor. And like, No reasons in the natural? Huh? Like I said, I watched that floor dry. I know there was nothing there. I have been asked by people before, why do you think that God would do that? Why would God just send you diamonds? And I love... That's kind of the question. That's the $24 million question on the table at the moment. I love what Pastor Bill Johnson says. He says, if God wants to rain paper clips down from heaven, that's great with me. And I agree with him because it's fun. And we don't... You agree with him because it's fun? Oh, how fun that God, you know, gave us these six diamonds. We don't have to always have a reason why we do things for people we love. We just do it because we love them. And God loves us, and he just gives us things for us to enjoy. James. Oh, okay, so God, if, you know, if we have an expectation that God's going to do these things, then, you know, God might cause little diamonds to appear, in, you know, on your floor after you've mopped it. Uh, as is basically, it's like butterfly kisses from God up in heaven. 117 says that every good and every perfect gift comes from from God and this was a good and perfect gift and he did it just because he loves us. I felt like my heart was going to like jump out of my my body cuz I was like all surprised that I found another diamond and it was awesome. It this like shocks me that he could just do something and we don't even see it. He just comes, drops down the floor, and we're like, hey, look, a diamond. But it's awesome what he does for us. Um, and, like, he does so many things for us. We don't even know what he's doing. God does so many things for us, like, you know, giving us diamonds, you know, when we least expect it. Um, okay, so here's, the, again, the question on the table is, what's the purpose of these particular um, miracles. Well, if I could, if you have your Bible, open up to uh, Matthew chapter 24. I will be uh, reading a section from the Gospel of Matthew and talk, basically point out something that, about God here and uh, about what Christ said about the last days, and we'll, we'll see if this makes any sense here. Um, okay, Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to start at verse 3. The verse in particular I want to get to is at, is at verse 24, but I want to get there in context. 
So we read, uh, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, uh, when will these things happen and what will, be, what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So deception kind of seems to be the hallmark of the end days. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Oh, so much for having your best life now. And uh, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Okay, verse 11 says, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because uh, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And, and, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not return back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be great tribulation such as not has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For, this is the important verse, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Okay, So here's the deal. When you compare Patricia King's teaching to the word of God, it's clear this woman is a heretic, plain and simple. And yet, one of the things that seems to be at the center point of her so-called ministry is, is this... Um, is the signs and wonders glory stuff. Uh, they have uh, miraculous appearing of glitter and, and, and diamonds and gems and things like supposedly. Now here's the deal. Is it possible that, that those are real diamonds? Yeah, actually it is. Is it possible that those diamonds, uh, were not put there by humans, but were put there by, um, some spiritual forces? Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So Jesus himself warns us for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So here's the deal. The whole purpose of these signs and wonders being performed by the Patricia Kings, the Todd Bentleys, the, the Rick Joyners, uh, you know, even the Benny Hins, by the way, uh, this is interesting. Uh, Y'all know that Benny Hinn is, uh, is, his wife filed for divorce. There's a story coming out of Africa 
that um, that the reason for uh, Benny Hinn's divorce is that uh, he might have been engaging in um, same-sex uh, intercourse with uh, some guys down in Africa. That's the story. Don't know its veracity, but it you know, interesting that that came up. Anyway, um, anyway, so but here's the deal. All of these false prophets, all of these false signs and wonders, these are miracles designed to basically buttress and support a particular message. That's really the idea behind these miracles. So you always, you, you never look at the miracles themselves. You have to look at the message. So if somebody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one that's laid out in the scriptures and there's signs and wonders following it, you got to basically say, okay, those are signs and wonders, as Jesus said, that so as to lead astray, if it were even possible, God's elect. And Jesus told us ahead of time. So that's the idea. So what are the miracles that support our gospel? Plain and simple. The, the miracles that Jesus performed and the miracle of him rising from the dead. Okay? Plain and simple. Okay, you could even add into the mix the, the uh, miracles that were performed by the apostles, and uh, but the, even the apostles didn't perform quite the same, you know, the same types of, you know, uh, was was same quantity is that the right way of putting it, uh, the, of, of miracles that Jesus did. But their miracles did buttress the message. Okay, so miracles are always there to support a message, and you always have to test the message and not basically say, well, this has to be from God because there's miracles following it. No, it doesn't have to be from God. If there are miracles following following a particular message, you should scrutinize it all the more because Satan uses false signs and wonders to mislead the elect if that were possible. That's the whole purpose of it. it it's deception. And I think what we just heard from the extreme prophetic is an example of that. Because why? What was the gospel that was preached from this? Oh, God loves you and he likes giving you butterfly kisses from heaven. By, and he can do all these wonderful little things whenever he wants to. That's so great. But where's the cross and where's repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the actual Jesus of the Bible? Uh, <clears throat> mysteriously missing. All right. We are up on our first break. Well, actually, we're a little late. Um, and when we come back, we're going to spend some time on McLaren and uh, the so-called kingdom of God. And uh, you're not going to want to miss this because uh, basically we're going to be doing some Bible teaching and kind of comparing uh, McLarenism to uh, what Jesus taught regarding the kingdom of God. So you definitely don't want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Padgett in left field. But wait, Fools Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teeing Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. back 
warning. I'm completely unimpressed with so-called signs and wonders. Show me what you believe. Let's compare that to the Word of God, and then we'll determine whether or not that's a real miracle from the real God. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is a listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us here at Fighting for the Faith by uh, visiting our website and joining our crew. It is a mere $6.95 a month, and and, uh, that's like nothing. We're talking about... Uh, you know, uh, uh, well, we've talked about Starbucks. We've talked about, you know what it is? It's a box of sushi over at the, uh, at the local market. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a second. Yeah, that's some, some of those supermarket sushis are a little, um, yeah, some are better than others. I understand what I'm saying. <laughs> Maybe sushi is the wrong thing. Have to work on this. Anyway, it's only $6.95 a month. And uh, w- again, the way you join, fightingforthefaith.com. Visit our website. Click on the Join Our Crew button. And when you join, you do get access to our Pirate Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you grow deeper in God's Word, uh, Christ-centered theology and apologetics. Good stuff there. That's our way of saying thank you uh, for those of you who've joined our crew. Now, if you'd like to uh, fill in the blank as to how much you would like to contribute to Fighting for the Faith, you can do that by clicking on the Donate button. You can then specify the amount. It's all there uh, online and secure. Or you can do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, moving along here. I got a, I got a news story from the Christian Post. Headline reads, Brian McLaren, the kingdom of God it's, is not about me. All right. Now, we have, as of late, a a very emboldened Brian McLaren, if you would, and Brian McLaren is boldly out there proclaiming his new kind of Christianity, which has absolutely no semblance with the ancient and historic kind of Christianity whatsoever. And as a result of it, McLaren, because he's found this new voice of his, is basically, wow, out there proclaiming his heresy very boldly. And uh, this is an example of that. But uh, Dateline London, uh, by the way, who wrote this? Is this Lillian? Uh, No, Maria uh, McKay wrote this, uh, who's from Christian Today, uh, the sister uh, website for the Christian Post there in the UK. And it reads, London, uh, the kingdom of God is not about me, but about transforming the world and everything in it, says Brian McLaren. Really? The kingdom of uh, the kingdom of God is about transforming the world and everything in it. Really? Hmm. We're gonna do some, we're gonna do a little biblical work here. We're gonna basically do some comparative work and look at what Jesus has to say about the kingdom of God. See if this transforming the world and everything in it is all part of Jesus's teaching on the kingdom. I mean, I mean, if that's really what the kingdom of God is all about, don't you think Jesus would be on board with Brian McLaren? <clears throat> uh, Anyway, uh, speaking on uh, on uh, day two of the Faith Works Conference on Saturday, the popular emerging church leader asserted that Christians tend to put themselves and their entry into heaven at the center of their faith. Wrong. That's actually a lie. No. It is not their entry into heaven that is the center of the Christian faith. Keep this in mind. Okay, this is really important. Faith always has an object always, always, always has an object. And so you have to think of faith as like eyesight. 
plain and simple. You can see things with your eyes, but you don't see your eyesight. So whatever you set your gaze on, that's what you're looking at. Faith is much the same way. So what is the center of the Christian faith? It has never been, and I would even say it's an absolutely incorrect characterization and mischaracterization to say that uh, entry into heaven is the center of the Christian faith even right now in American evangelicalism. Okay, No, that's not it at all. What's the center of the Christian faith? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the one in whom we put our trust. He is the one whom we believe died for our sins and propitiated God's wrath. Jesus Christ is the center of the Christian faith. And trust in him does save us eternally. That being said, okay, just plain and simple. I mean, if Christianity was all about, quote, getting into heaven, then wouldn't the expectation be that once somebody repents and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would be whisked away off into heaven? And, you know, like Jesus, you know, when he ascended, just float up into the clouds. No. Christians have always lived, had to live out their lives in expectation and hope for Christ's return. And should Christ tarry, should Christ tarry, then then basically looking forward to seeing him face to face upon the day of our individual deaths. And in the meantime, what do we as Christians get to do? Ah, we get to, now we're set free to love our neighbor and to serve our neighbor. In other words, we're set free to do the law. That's right. We're sitting on, well, huh? Third use of the law. It's only for Christians. It shows us what a good work is. We've been set free from sin, death, and the devil. Right. You're right. I got it. Good. Okay. That means we're set free to serve and love our neighbor. And that's what Christians have been doing for millennia. Then the question is, how do we serve and love our neighbor? Well, my question for you is first and foremost, well, what are you given to do? Are you a mom? You serve your neighbor by cleaning snotty noses making sandwiches, taking care of your children. Are you a wife? You, you're, you are set free now to love and, and be a helpmate to your husband. Are you a husband? Now you're set free to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Are you a child? Are you, are you living in a home? You and Christ are set free to be obedient and respectful children. Plain and simple. I mean, this is uh, this is just Bible 101. But what, what's McLaren trying to do here? It's trying to get you off of this idea of that uh, that you, you're saved. You know, always attacking the doctrine that you know that if you trust in Christ, then you will spend an eternity, have eternal life with Him. But we continue. He says anyway. So the, so Christians tend to put themselves and their entry at, 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 to heaven at the center of their faith. Wrong, while neglecting to consider the significance of their faith for the world around them. Now, this is very deceptive on his part. Why? Because apparently you know, Christianity is supposed to be getting results as far as transforming the world into the kingdom of God. Uh, Christians, he's, he said, have become consumers of religious goods and services. This is true. Uh, this is a fair critique. Who view the church as something that exists to fulfill their needs and house, and house their soul until they went to heaven. 
again, kind of a mischaracterization. I would say that there is a very pro- there's a problematic strain in Christianity and a big movement that has a lot of followers that basically reduces uh, Christianity down to basically meeting felt needs. I think that's correct. And and that basically means that God exists to serve us rather than we exist to glorify God. Um, but that's not where McLaren's going with this. Quote, our theology is perfectly designed to produce the results we're now getting. Results? Interesting. Quote, if you want a change in results, you need a change in theology, he said. Results? What kind of results is he talking about? Oh, yeah. Well, see, the results he's looking for is he wants a Christianity that will transform the world into the kingdom of God. Okay, let's see here. All right. Um, uh, see, he said that although Christians were not of the world, they uh, were still in the world and called to be agents of transformation by bringing God's kingdom to earth. I thought Christ brings the kingdom to earth at the end. Did you ever read the book of Revelation? <clears throat> Quote, we're not passive players uh, conforming to the world, but with transformed and renewed minds, we are agents of transformation, he said. Quote, the kingdom of God is about God's kingdom being done on earth. <laughs> it's not a plan of upward mobility on how we get to heaven, but how God's kingdom comes down to earth. It's a downward movement, he says. Okay, let me skip ahead a little bit here. The FaithWorks 360 Degrees Conference is taking place in Einfield, North London, over the weekend to explore a vision for the church that embraces all aspects of life. To explore a vision for the church that embrace a vision for the church. Oh, a false vision. Okay. That embraces all aspects of life. Uh-huh. Uh, earlier in the conference, FaithWorks founder Stephen Schalk, uh, that's the guy who basically uh, describes the penal substitution as a divine child abuse, told Christians to rediscover the meaning and purpose of their lives by going out of the church and serving their communities. Recalling that Jesus had broken his body as an act of service, he said uh, "He said service was not an add-on or, or for only those Christians who had the time, but something that every believer was called by Jesus to do. Find God in the ordinary, in service. His body was broken for community. In doing that, you'll find yourself... And the sense of meaning, he said. Well, that's a false gospel. Christ's body was broken for community? Uh, that's not what the text says. The texts that talk about Christ's body being broken talk about him being broken for our transgression, for our sins, for our iniquities, for our rebellion. Okay, now, that being all said, I thought it would be interesting if we spent a little bit of time in the text Okay, since McLaren constantly is referring to this kingdom stuff, why don't we let Jesus uh, do some kingdom talk, if you would? And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to start at Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at the parables. We're going to look at Jesus' teaching about the kingdom and see if Jesus, in his talking about the kingdom, describes it as the thing that we're supposed to transform the world thingy, kind of. what, Yeah. <clears throat> Or, or if Jesus is a universalist like McLaren is, or if Jesus doesn't teach the doctrine of hell like McLaren, 
Anyway, <clears throat> we read uh, Matthew. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 13. We're in, we, uh, in several key texts here in the Gospel of Matthew, so this will take a few minutes, which means we're, we'll be running a little bit late into our uh, second break, but that's okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. The same, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and a great, great crowds gathered around him, about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and then he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So this first parable is in, you know, basically he's speaking in parables, and he's going to teach the disciples the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Here we go. This is the this is it. This is kingdom stuff here. This is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. Let's see what Jesus has to say. Okay. Okay. But to them it has not been given. For to one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be it'll be taken away from him. That doesn't sound nice. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes, they have their eyes closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and then I, and turn and then I would heal them but blessed are you for your eyes blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear for truly I say to you many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it so hear then the parable of the sower when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This was what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and in another 30. This doesn't sound anything like what McLaren was saying. All right, let me continue. Let's see here. And he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. 
So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to them, to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and then bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. This doesn't sound like McLaren's universalism and denial of hell. <clears throat> we continue. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard, a seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. So it's like a shrub in your garden? So then he told another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a, a woman took and hid in the three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now all of these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he, sa he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does this sound anything like McLaren's uh, teaching on the kingdom? Any, any <laughs> at all? Okay, we got more. Hang on a second here. Let me pull this up. Um, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to start at verse 23. We're going to continue. 
Jesus said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who, one was brought to him who owned who owed him 10,000 talents. You just translate that as a, a bazillion dollars. It's just this huge number. And since he could not pay his master, ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he uh, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a month's wages. And seizing him, he began choking him, saying, pay what you owe me. So this fellow, this, this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This doesn't sound anything like what McLaren says the kingdom is about. How about Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16? Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So so they went. Going out again the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same, and about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said, Well, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when the those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give, I chose to give this last worker as I gave to you. And, and I am not allowed, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. How about Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14? Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. Then the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. 
Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in and looked at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. How about Matthew 25? The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the, the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. Now, immediately, oh, 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 this should tip you off. Five were foolish. Oh, yeah, Proverbs. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So when you hear about these foolish virgins, what should you be thinking? These are people, these are virgins who have no faith. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will be, since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going out, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast, and then the door was shut. Afterward, the ten virgins came out, the, 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 afterward, the other virgins came out also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I, I, I'm just not seeing this kingdom transforming the world thing. But I am seeing in Jesus' parables about, of the kingdom a recurring theme of judgment, wrath, separation of the wicked and the lawless, the foolish from the wise. Over and again, I'm in, just in Jesus' parables of the kingdom, I'm not seeing anything that McLaren's talking about. How about this one? Matthew 25, verse 14. For, for the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, and to another one, and to each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he went and had the two talents made uh, two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, uh, well, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. 
So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Wow, isn't it interesting how the other two were very excited and they knew their master was loving and kind and rewarding? And here this other guy thinks thinks the thinks Jesus is unkind and unloving and yeah. The other one doesn't know Jesus at all. Seriously, doesn't even understand what he's all about. Okay, all right, so here's what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I could have, I should have received what was mine with, with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to one who has been given, more will be given, and he who and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when you read these parables of the kingdom... Does it sound anything like what McLaren said? No. McLaren isn't describing the kingdom that Jesus taught. McLaren's teaching a different gospel, and he's teaching a completely different kingdom. The kingdom of God that Jesus taught, something completely different. Something completely different. Would love to get your feedback, though. What did you think of that little exercise? Now, you can send me your feedback, by the way, and the easiest way is to send me an email. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We're up on our second break. When we come back, it's going to be sermon review time, and we're doing a sermon, one of these malpractice sermons. It's going to be a based on the TV series Heroes, and the name of the sermon is The Hero Within. You don't want to miss it. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheap O Air as one of our featured advertisers. 
Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. We're well into it here at Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. In honor of uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley's uh, points regarding pastoral pulpit crimes and my elucidations regarding pastoral malpractice, I thought I would uh, pull out of my... I think I do have the world's largest collection of sermons. Um, I just, I'm, I'm not trying to brag there. I, I really do think that uh, it, my my collection has gotten well over 20,000 uh, sermons at this point. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> from my collection, I did find a, a real stinker that I thought would kind of help make this point. So with that, we're going to dive into our sermon review here. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from Brick City Community Church, Sanford, North Carolina. A sermon based upon the television series Heroes, entitled The Hero Within. Now, before I even cue up the sermon, does anybody out there have a problem theologically with this sermon? You should. The title should tip you off to some that this is going to just contain all kinds of rotten theology. Why? Christianity doesn't teach us about the hero within. It teaches us about the sinner that we are. We're not heroes by nature. We're sinners. And Brick City Community Church um, has bought into the seeker-driven methods. So apparently this is a seeker-sensitive sermon. Otherwise, they wouldn't be preaching this topic on the television series Heroes if they weren't trying to attract, quote, seekers to their church. Which leads to the question, if a seeker shows up, by the way, there's no such thing biblically, if a pagan shows up to the congregation as a result of their slick marketing and their relevant service about um, the Heroes television show, um... Are, do pagans have a hero within themselves? 
Is that what we Christians should be telling them about? Yeah, I don't think so. Let me kill that real quick. Let me read to you a, a passage that I think is important. Okay, We Christians should not be telling pagans that they have a hero within themselves, not by any stretch of the imagination. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting, and so this is Paul writing to the uh, the Christians in the in the churches in Ephesus. We read, "And as for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience." Do you think the apostle Paul ever once preached a sermon about the hero within the, the within the Greeks or the hero within the Romans, the hero within the Gentile pagans? Not on your life. Here the apostle Paul is saying that to the Ephesian Christians that they were once dead in trespasses and sins and basically sons of disobedience and uh, they were by nature objects of God's wrath. That's what the fact that's what it says among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we have no business telling somebody who's a pagan about the hero within them. We got to tell them about the sinner that they are by nature and how their sinfulness makes them a son of disobedience, uh, a, a, a child of the devil, and even an object of God's wrath by nature. That's the story we should be telling people so that we can then tell them the good news. And the good news is this, is that Although all of us, you and me included, have earned God's wrath, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. You see, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation to go and proclaim to the world that God was in Christ reconciling all people to himself and calling all of us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins won by our loving, kind, and merciful God, Jesus Christ. But you got to tell people the bad news before they can, so that they can then understand the good news. But if you're going to tell people, seekers, there's no such thing. If you're going to tell pagans that uh, they have a hero within them, you ain't teaching the biblical gospel at all. But we'll see what happens. By the way, I'm not sure which of the two pastors there at Brick City Community Church is responsible for preaching this one. Otherwise, I would tell you his name. So it's not that I'm I'm trying to you know slight him in any way, shape, or form. It's just that there's no indicator as to who which of the two pastors preached this particular um, criminal action here. So here is um, heroes, the hero within sermon. Welcome to Brick City Community Church. We're glad you're here. Today we're opening a brand new series called Heroes. How many of y'all have ever seen the show? Nobody's seen the show. I'm the only one watching it, right? A couple of them. How many of y'all have a hero? <laughs> so much for a relevant sermon. How many of y'all have seen Heroes? Am I, I'm the only one? <sighs> How many of y'all want to be a hero? All of us want to. All right, before we get started, I'm going to let you watch this, so sit back. 
Okay, I'm going to let you hear just the opening to this music. He, it's a really long song. Apparently, he's got a video queued, queued up with some hero-ish popular music here, I'll, just so you can get the gist of it. But then I'll skip ahead so that we don't have to listen to the whole thing. Okay, want to point something out here. We're not beginning in God's word at all. We begin with a question. How many of you want to, you know, how many of you seen heroes? How many of you want to be a hero? Here, let me show you this video. Anybody have any Advil? Good night. My head hurts just listening to this much of it. my hero watch him as he goes all right i'm gonna just fast forward just suffice it to say that apparently he's showing the a video based on this song uh, um, we're not beginning in god's word we're way off track let me fast forward pretty cool there goes my hero ordinary ordinary old guy we're starting our brand new series, Heroes. Today's message is entitled, The Hero Within. There's something about a hero, isn't it? There's something about a hero that just, it just draws us to them, right? Anybody who's a hero or experienced uh, uh, some kind of heroic uh, thing, just the, news, the news wants to flock to you. They want to interview. They want to be around you. They think you're cool. Being a hero is a great thing. You know, when I say, what is a hero? Immediately, I bet your mind would go to maybe the Twin Towers in New York. Maybe those firemen and those rescue workers and the police officers who ran into a burning building and uh, uh, just ran up while everybody else was coming down. They ran up to hopefully to help somebody who was doomed to certain death. Maybe you think of the hundreds and thousands of men and women who have been deployed across the world who are fighting for this idea that we call freedom. Maybe you think of Ted Beamer or, and, the, and the guys who are with him on Flight 93, that when they realized what was happening and they were being hijacked by terrorists, he said, no, not here. We're not going to allow you to kill thousands of people. We're going to take you out. That's a hero, right? For the next four weeks, we're going to go through this series called Heroes, and we're going to find out uh, what makes a hero. What is a what exactly is a hero, and and how can you do some heroic things in your life? What? 
I don't see this as a major theme anywhere in the scriptures. So you can do some heroic things in your life? Oh, boy. You know, let me personalize this a little bit. Let me personalize this, this idea of a hero. Who is your hero? Think about it. Who is your hero? In- if we're in church, that the hero you should be preaching about is Jesus Christ. If you're going to use heroic language, I mean, seriously, we're talking about God becoming a man, living a perfect life, and dying in our uh, in our place on the cross. You, that's the supreme example. But I, I even hate to use that term that way. But that's what a hero is. So Jesus is my hero. He's my savior. He's my king and my God. Can we hear about him instead of giving me tips on how I can be heroic? Please, isn't this church? In your life. You know, I know you might think, you know, the police officers or the firemen or you might have some infamous person that you think of as a hero, as a as an icon, you know, Mother Teresa or somebody. But let's dig a little deeper. Who is the act- who is the real hero in your life? Maybe you had a parent, maybe a mother or father who you idolize, who would who just gave everything for you, put everything they had into your life. Maybe it was a spouse or a friend or a sibling who, you know, they just seem to know everything you need and when you need it. Maybe it was a coach or a teacher in, in, in high school who, you know, they saw something in you and nobody else did. I think every one of us have a hero somewhere in our life. I think that... Every one of us have a desire in our heart to become a hero. Maybe not to... Okay, I'm going to ask a question. So far, you know, this sermon, by the way, even though I cut out a large portion of that song, we're at the eight-minute mark in this sermon. What can you point to that makes this sermon Christian? Anything I mean, in reality, up to this point, this sermon could have been preached um, at the Rotary Club. This could have been, this sermon, speech, could have been delivered at a a junior college uh, speech class. What is specifically Christian about this? Do I need a crucified and risen Savior for this? Let's continue. Say, I'm a hero, but I believe that every single person at the right time, given the right circumstances with the right gifts, would would not hesitate to step up and do something that others would call heroic. You know, we love the stories of heroes, don't we? Inside, we have a deep desire to be one. We want to, we want to do something heroic. We want to have purpose in our life. We want to, to believe that, that our life matters more than just the monotonous, mundane life to, that, that we have every day. Did you catch that little part about purpose? We want, we want our life to matter more than just the monotonous, mundane life that we already have. Now, keep in mind, Biblical Christianity instructs those who are slaves 
who don't even own themselves to obey their masters. Slaves, obey your masters as unto the Lord. Nothing could get more mundane and monotonous than living during an age of human history where there wasn't even technology. Technology such as, as internal plumbing, toilets, stoves, ovens, electricity, hot and cold running water from the internal plumbing, a washing machine, things like that. I mean, put yourself back in time to the first century, which is just a little bit north of the Stone Age, technologically. And now imagine yourself as actually being a slave. You don't even own yourself. And you have, talk about monotony, talk about hard, back-breaking labor. And Jesus doesn't say, now, now listen, got to find the hero within you. And don't worry, I'm going to save you from this monotonous lifestyle. No. Jesus' instruction for those who are in that who are Christian is to serve their masters as they as if they were serving the Lord Jesus himself. So this category that we're hearing about here from this pastor, I don't even think this is a biblical category. You know, when I was young, I loved superheroes. How many of y'all had a favorite superhero? I, I used to get up early and I had to be real quiet because if mom and dad woke up, they were going to give me jobs to do on Saturday morning. So I'd be real quiet, sneak down, turn the TV on, get real close. Six o'clock in the morning, the Super Friends came on, right? Y'all remember that? My two favorite superheroes were Spider-Man and Superman. Because between the two of them, they could do anything, you know? I guess I had a thing for men in blue and red tights, and that's kind of disturbing. <laughs> but I've gotten past that. Very, very, very. I did not need that. Yes, very disturbing. You know, my brother and I used to pretend that we were superheroes and we go down to our friend's house and there'll be six or eight of us and we go back in the woods. There were just acres and acres and acres of open woods, nothing back there. Big giant oak trees. You could see through the woods. It was open, big rolling hills and, and creeks and rocks and all that. We go back there and play all day long and we'd split up. Half of us had to be the good guys and half of us had to be the bad guy. And I was one of the oldest. So I was always one of the good guys because, you know, the villains always lost, right? I was one of the good guys. At this particular day, I was Batman. I had my utility belt, had all this stuff on. My brother was Slingshot. And he was called Slingshot because he had what? A slingshot. He was a villain. He was a bad guy. So we're going through the woods and we're playing and all that. And he jumps out from behind a tree and he has an acorn this big. And he shot that thing right at me and hit me in the chest with an acorn. And you know, superheroes don't cry, right? So I had to look around, and the first thing I saw was a rusty old cookie sheet sticking out of the out of the out of the, the leaves. And I reached down; he's running and laughing and telling everybody, "I killed the superhero!" And I just grabbed that thing. Whoom! You know where it's headed, don't you? Now, at first, it looked like he was okay. He was running. There was trees in the way; it wasn't going to do anything. And that thing come in and did a 
thing like this, and he turned at the right time, and boom, right upside the back of the head. Knocked him out. Quickly, I had to run over there and remind him. Okay, questions. So far, has this pastor demonstrated that he is capable of preaching God's word, that he's qualified to do so, or is this pastoral malpractice that we're hearing so far up to this point? We are, by the way, at the 11-minute mark, 11 minutes into the sermon, at a church. God and his word has yet to make an appearance. The supervillains don't go crying to their mommy. <laughs> For some reason, I figured that she wouldn't see the gaping wound in the back of his head. I don't know. Trying to make him wear hats in the summertime. You know, all of us have this desire to be a hero. All of us have this desire to be something more than we are. Well, okay, wait a second. All of us have a desire to be a hero or to be something more than what we are? So you're beginning within the desires of humanity, a subjective urge within them to be something more than they are, and that you are equating that you can now preach a sermon to that subjective urge? I, uh, may I <clears throat> pop that balloon really quickly? There are a lot of people who may have a desire to be more than they are. And it's because of their self-centered vanity. Because of their narcissism. It's not good. In fact, I would say probably in most cases, uh, this desire to be more than you are uh, is may not, probably isn't even a godly desire, but rather a sign of your sinfulness and your need of a savior. In in the show Heroes, some of y'all haven't seen it, so I'll catch you up a little bit. Okay, notice he we haven't gotten to God's word at all yet, and he's going to catch us up on the. Uh, television show heroes which by the way season one is pretty good the the, the finale yeah that kind of underwhelming uh season two we're already going downhill season three not even worth your time i don't even care what they're doing season four whatever they're at right now okay but season one is interesting it, there's some redemption there's actually some if you were to actually <clears throat> get into concepts of redemption and sin and fall and things like that, you can actually go far with it. But, okay, he's going to exegete the uh, television series Heroes. If you haven't seen it, I apologize. This might be a, a spoiler for you, um, but it's not well done. So it's. We see a whole bunch of unlikely heroes, just like that song said. He's ordinary. We see a bunch of ordinary people, people with problems, People with lives are falling apart. And we see, uh, we see a professor. His name is Sudesh. And Sudesh is the son of another... It's Suresh. ...genetics professor who was killed by a man named Siler. And he stumbles upon the research of his deceased father, and he finds out that, that they believe that they have discovered the next level of evolution in the world. And out of the billions and billions of people on the earth, there are selected few who are emerging with some special ability or some special power. And they're scattered throughout the world. And, and his father comes up with some kind of program that figures out who they are. 
So Sudesh feels the responsibility. He realizes that that this guy Siler is after these people. Now the reason he it's Suresh. <laughs> okay, and now the question is, what does this have to do with biblical Christianity? What does this have to do with God's word and what His word teaches? How is somebody supposed to grow in the Christian faith as a result of hearing this sermon, which isn't even based in God's word? And supposedly this is a, a relevant sermon topic, you know, in order to show how relevant they are so that people will show up. And not even there wasn't even a lot of people who there who had even seen this. So just how relevant is this? he's after him is because he wants to cut their head open and eat their brains and take their power. But we'll, that's a side note. We won't talk about that. But basically, Sudesh says, I got to go find these people and I have to warn them about this guy who killed my father. I'm going to find out who they are. So uh, he's going through the research and he's trying to figure out who they are and he's traveling all over the place. And he comes up and he meets a few people. There's a, a guy named Isaac. He's a heroin addict. He, he, you know, he, he's totally high all the time. He can't get enough. But he has a special ability that when he goes to a canvas and he starts painting, he actually paints the future. Whatever he paints comes to pass within just, just a short time. We find a political figure. He's running for Senate. He has a very dominating, controlling mother. His wife is, was in a car accident. She's disabled. She's in a wheelchair. And, uh, but he, through all these, um, happenings, he figures out that he can fly. There's a tech, in Texas, there's a cheerleader. And she finds out that she is virtually indestructible, indestructible uh, by trying to commit suicide. There's a guy who's a L.A. beat cop, and uh, he's flunked the the uh, detective test three times. He's got a failing marriage. His life has fallen apart. But he discovers that he can uh, read other people's thoughts. Because all he has to do is be in the same room with them, and he can tell what they're thinking. Then across the Pacific, there's my favorite, a guy named Hiro Nakamura. He's a paper pusher. He's stuck in a dead-end job. He's in a cubicle on a desk in a big company. A loser all his life. Everybody called him a loser. He had no purpose in his life. He, had, he, he was at the bottom of his class. Okay, listen again. He, was, he had no purpose. He had no purpose. You are hearing the so-called gospel of purpose is this a biblical gospel or is this the false uh, is this a false gospel i'm not hearing anything to back this up biblically yes but through some happenings he figures out that he can stop time and actually bend time and trans teleport himself one of my favorite scenes is when hero is in his cubicle and he first dis discovers his talent he first, he's looking at the clock and he's, he's discovering, well, let me just show you. Watch this. Uh, I will be playing this, by the way, and we don't have subtitles here, so I hope your Japanese is up to speed.
Okay, now there's a reason why I'm playing this. Again, this is all done in the name of relevance. And this is a podcast that was put out at Brick City Community Church. If you uh, didn't attend their service and wasn't able to read the subtitles, uh, the subtext, here as uh, Hiro and Ando are having a little exchange in Japanese, um, are you catching any of this? <laughs> I mean, I don't know any Japanese. ちくばらだったら得してたのに。本気だ。だからか。これで今朝の地下鉄の原画を買ったぜ。14秒遅れた。大したもんだ。だから人も遅れたことないって言ってるだろ。さあ、ははは。超能力を使って、お体さねたん
Simon's a sinner just like you and I. gift that Simon had. He sees a call on Simon's life that nobody can see, and he calls it out. Let's read with me in John 1, 40. Okay, hang on a second here. Got to point something out here. Jesus didn't see anything in Simon. Jesus is the one who called Simon. Jesus is the one who made Simon. He is the one who called him, and Simon obeyed Christ's word. Oh, boy. Simon, Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, Andrew, I mean, he he runs to him. He says, look, I have found the Messiah, the person that we have been waiting for. I found him. You have got to come here. You got to see him. So he he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. As soon as he looked at Simon... He saw something that nobody else saw. He said, I mean, he doesn't even know this guy. This guy walks up to him and says, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. And being translated, that means Peter, which is rock. He said, you're no longer a loser. You're no longer a a one who runs at the mouth. He said, I see something in you that nobody else sees. Okay, is this a truthful and faithful telling of this story? Answer, not even close. This is something completely different than a faithful reading of the text. This guy is isogeting like nuts. I mean, what we're hearing here is not the text faithfully taught. This is a self-actualization. There's something good inside of you sermon. And Jesus would never say that. Why? Because we are sinners There's nothing good in and of ourselves. We have nothing to offer God. We are completely spiritually bankrupt and dead in trespasses and sins. No one ever saw this in Simon. He was always putting... And no one ever saw this in the text before either. Putting his foot in his mouth. He stunk. He smelled like fish. He hung out with people mending nets. He wasn't a... A good-looking guy, I'm sure, at least not before his bath. I mean, he was a nasty guy. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're rock. You're Peter. I'm going to call you Peter. I don't care what your name is. I don't care what your parents gave you. I'm calling you Peter. In ancient times, a, a name meant something. A name carried weight. A name identified that person. Your identity was wrapped up in your name. When you came to somebody and you told them what their name was, they knew who you were because of your name. Not like us in America today. I just had a baby four months ago. My my wife did, as she will surely remind me. Uh, You know, four months ago, before that, we were looking for a name. We found out it's a girl. And and we said, you know what? We want a pretty name. We we come up with a name. No, nah, I don't like that one. Sounds crazy. No, nah, not that one. They'll they'll call her this. They'll make the name this and that. Uh, no, nah, I don't like that one. She'll get beat up if she has that name. So we came across. Um, we you know we named her Chloe. So pretty. I have absolutely no idea what it means. I didn't name her because Chloe meant something. Obviously, it means most beautiful baby in the world, but. That's not why I named her. We named her Chloe Elizabeth because it was pretty. 
Let me read to you a couple of names. I went to a website not long ago that, that had the fastest up-and-coming names in, in America. And uh, let me give you a few because you got to listen to these. So, uh, one of the fastest grow, um, uh, uh, advancing names on the list is called Kiwi. Can you imagine naming your kid Kiwi? A little brown, ugly, fuzzy fruit with green insides. Are you going to name your kid Kiwi? That's crazy. <laughs> How about this one? I don't want to offend you, so if this is your kid's name, I'm sorry. How about Sundance? Hey, Sundance. Isn't it sweet, Sundance? Here are the two fastest advancing names on the whole list, Infinity and Lexus. Pastor Bill says it sounds like a couple of hookers. <laughs> it does. Celebrities are the worst. Courtney Cox named her kid Coco. Can you imagine? Coco, come here. I thought Coco was a monkey. She named her kid Coco. And even worse than that, Gwyneth Paltrow, she named her kid Apple. Can you imagine calling Apple in the room? When she gets like 70 years old, she's going to be Granny Smith? <laughs> Apple. I don't think he wrote that joke himself. I think he stole it from some late night guy. Crazy. Anybody remember the old rocker Frank Zappa? Oh, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Listen to this twisted dude. He named his kids Dweezil and Moon Unit. How twisted is that? In ancient times, a name meant something. So far, it's uh, just about as twisted as this sermon. I mean, at this point, the guy completely eisegeted stuff in here that, it, that doesn't belong. Let me uh, pull up the text and let's take a look at it in context because I think that will help out here. Okay. Okay. Let's see here. What I'm going to do, I'm in John chapter 1, verse 35. Now, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus. And as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ, or the Anointed One. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Nothing there about him stinking, nothing there about him working in a cubicle, nothing there about Jesus finding something in him. He says, You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, okay? By the way, hang on a second here. I want to check something in the Greek. All right, hold on. Uno momento. I need to pull up my Greek New Testament. Verse 42, okay. Okay, he gazed in the face of him. Jesus spoke, said, said, you are Simon, you are. Uh, and you, okay, future passive indicative. Okay, all right, so here we go. Um, just I wanted to check something out here. You shall be called 
Peter, which means rock. Okay. Jesus here is not saying I'm, you are now called this. He says you will be called that. That's important. Keep in mind, when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, the grammar itself is um, is also inspired. So here when Jesus is saying you shall be called Cephas, he's speaking in the future tense. Okay, Where is this passage then fulfilled? Answer, Matthew chapter 16. It's found, the, the full story is actually found in um in the in the gospel of Matthew. Now let me add some context to this. We're in Matthew chapter 16, specifically verse 18. Um but we're now in uh, we're Matthew chapter 16 verse 13 is where we're going to start. If you have your Bible follow along. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say the son of man is?" And they said, "Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets." And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, which Peter was, uh, which which rock was Jesus referring to? He's going to build his he's going to build his church on Peter, or is he going to build it on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God? Go with the second. Okay, so it's not that at this time when we look at John chapter one, which is what this pastor is supposedly preaching on, that Jesus saw something special that nobody else saw inside of Peter. That's a lie. That's not what the text says. Jesus says, you shall be, you will be called rock. He's not naming him rock then. He says, you will be called rock sometime in the future. You shall be named this. That name comes to him later in Jesus's ministry. And when Jesus announces you know, basically, listen, you guys know, he basically asks them who he is. Peter gets it right, and then he tells them to shush up about it, and then begins to tell them about his going to his death. No sooner does Jesus tell them about the fact that he's going to die and suffer, that Peter turns around and rebukes the Lord. Okay, let me read this. Okay, so we continue. Matthew chapter 16 Um Verse 18 again, and I will tell, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told them, his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So here's the deal. This pastor is making this text, 
this one verse from the Gospel of John, where Jesus, speaking in the future tense, says that you will be, you shall be called Cephas, and he's inserting into the text something that's not there. That Jesus saw something special inside of Peter. No, absolutely not. That would absolutely contradict the clear teaching of God's word that there is none righteous, no, not one. That we are all by nature objects of God's wrath. This teaching by this pastor is a form of pastoral malpractice, which is far more serious than the type of malpractice that doctors and physicians engage in. Because he's basically teaching us that there's something good inside of us when there clearly and patently isn't according to God's word. And the way he's doing it is he's not paying attention to what the text says. He's basically telling a story about the text. He's eisegeting, putting things in there. Why? Because he didn't begin in the text. He began with his, quote, gospel of purpose and then tried to hunt for for passages that supported his ideas rather than teaching the text in context and letting us know what it is that God's word truly teaches. That's the problem here. We continue. Carried weight. It was the identity of that person and the name were interlinked. They were intertwined. Within a name was your identity, and Jesus was a name giver. All through the Bible, God, we see God giving people names. We see people change uh, their names being changed. God expresses His call on somebody's life by giving them a new name. And some of you sitting here today and say, yeah, you know what? A call isn't for everybody. A call is for like Billy Graham or, or Mother Teresa or somebody like that. But you know what? God has a call on every single person's life. You sitting in here have a call by God. And a call isn't exactly what you think. I didn't put this on your notes, but it's worth writing down. A call is simply this. What God was planning when he thought you up. That's what a call is. If you think about it in your life, is your life what God was thinking, was was planning when he thought you up? Um, really, before sin entered the world? Huh. What God was planning before he thought me up. Can you find, give me a passage that bears out this teaching in clear, unequivocal terms? You know, in Scripture, God names what he sees in somebody and calls it forth. You know, he says you may have been. Nope, that's not what he does. This is not true. This is not taught in the text. He's inserting that in there. And called hero, H-I-R-O. But I call you hero, H-E-R-O. If you read with me in Genesis, let's, uh, let's look at another example of a name being changed. Jesus is talking to Abram and he says, No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. This is an old dude. This guy's in his late 80s and his wife is in her late 70s at the time. And then 10 years later, Abraham, uh, 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 God says that I'm going to make you father of many nations. How many of y'all want to start a family when your wife's 90 and you're 100? Okay, I'm going to point something out here. The text he's quoting from is from Genesis chapter 17. 
Let me read it in context. Genesis chapter 17, starting at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and my and, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you and the land of your sojourning and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." Who's doing what in Genesis 17? Is it because there was something great inside of Abraham that God, that, that Abram, that God changed his name to Abraham? No. He was as good as dead. 99 years old, dried up. He ain't got nothing. Right? God says, uh-uh. I am going to make you into a great nation. I am going to make you a multitude. I am who's speaking God is. It's not that there was something great in Abram. It's that Abram had a great God. Nobody in here wants to do that. It took a bunch of faith. Can you imagine the faith it took for somebody to even swallow the fact that God wanted to start a family that late? father of many nations. He says, you might be called Abram, but when I was planning you, when I thought you up, I thought father of many nations. I don't care. How- Doesn't say that in the text. You're inserting that. That's eisegesis. That's an illegal use of God's word. It's a form of scripture twisting. How long it's been. I don't care what your name is. I don't care what your identity is. I thought of you as father of many nations. How many of y'all follow baseball? Any? any there's a few of you. Let me tell you a story. There's a there's a guy when you talk about getting beat up in school because of your name. There's a guy who played for the Dodgers in the 80s. His name was Oral Leonard Hershiser the Fourth. How many of you are so glad you got your name? <laughs> Fahrenheit ain't that bad, is it? He played for Tommy Lasorda. How many know who Tommy Lasorda is? You ladies know him. He's a slim fast guy, right? Before before Oral was an all-star, he was he was in a particular game. He was a pitcher for the Dodgers. He was in a particular game, and he was really struggling. He was walking everybody. They were hitting off of him. He couldn't do nothing. Tommy Lasorda dropped everything he was doing, walked from the bullpen, came out to the mound. Now, obviously, everybody thought, what? Going to take him out. Going to pull him out. Tommy didn't do that. Tommy looked him square in the eyes, and he said, Oral, Do you know what I see when I think of you? I don't see a struggling pitcher. I don't see somebody who's walked all these batters and allowed this many hits. He said, I see a bulldog. He said, I see somebody who can tackle anything, who doesn't have an enemy, who who can go up against any enemy and defeat them. And from that time forward, he he pitched uh, uh, consecutive strikeouts 
knocked the guys out, went on the following year. He, he um, set the National League in winning percentage. He went on to make the all-star team. He broke the long-term pitching record of 59 consecutive scoreless innings. He won his first Golden Glove, golden glove and was unanimously, that's a hard word, unanimously voted to, for the Cy Young Award, which is a very high honor. Okay, I want to point something out. Oral Hershiser's story does not appear anywhere in Scripture. Just want to point that out. Baseball. He pitched in four games in the 1988 National League Championship, won the MVP, and then the following series went on to win the MVP in it and won the World Series. Later, he went on to Cleveland, and he played for the American League, and he won the World Series there and the MVP in the World Series in the American League. He's the only player to ever do it in both leagues. Abram became Abraham. He became the person that God designed him to be. Hero, H-I-R-O, became hero, H-E-R-O. Okay, notice, what's the emphasis of this sermon? You. This is a man-centered. This is an anthropocentric sermon. This is not Christ-centered. This is not God-centered. This is you and your grand delusions for your life centered. He became the person he was designed to be. Oral became Bulldog. To this day, if you interview him, if you see him on TV, nobody ever calls him Oral Leonard Hershiser IV. He is Bulldog Hershiser. That's his name. That's his identity. One of the greatest pitchers who ever lived. He became the person he was designed to be because somebody saw something in him that nobody else saw. A lot of you here today and you're living with that name that weighs you down. You're living with a name. You've been attacked on names that identifies you as something, and you know deep down in that that's not you. That when God was thinking you up, that was not his plan for your life. Okay, got to point something out here. This is a complete mishandling of sin. You you know that you weren't. this is not what God thought up for your life. Well, right, exactly. Um, that means I'm a sinner and I fall short of God's glory because of my sin and rebellion against him. In thought, word, deed, the things I don't do, the things I do, good night. Maybe it's sinner. Maybe it's addict. Maybe it's an adulterer. Maybe it's an angry person. Maybe it's a loser or stupid or dumb. Maybe people have attached things to your life and you've bought into the lie that that's who you are. That's your So if somebody called me a sinner, am I a sinner? If somebody just calls me an adulterer, am I an adulterer? Am I a victim of somebody drive-by slapping a label on me? Or am I really an adulterer and a sinner? And what's the solution to this? Christ and him crucified for our sins? Or God seeing, looking inside you and seeing the true self and knowing that that's not what he called you to be. And all you got to do is, is be what, you, what God imagined you to be when he thought you up. That's your identity. God didn't, God didn't do that. When he was planning you, he thought this is more than a conqueror. This person is successful. This person is loved. This person is forgiven. This person is redeemed. God has given you a new name. And my question today... Okay, that actually counts as, as a gospel nugget. Hang on, that went by really quick, though. Yep, there it went. 
All right, moving along. Have you heard it? You know, there's two days, most important days in your life. Number one is the day you're born. Most important day of your life. The second day is when you find out why. Really? Where in the Bible does it teach that the second most important day of your life is the day you figure out why you were created? Because, you know, I could tell you the most important day of my life since being born is the day I was given repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. In the course of my adult life, I've done several different things. So I I can't even tell you for sure what I'm going to be when I grow up. I still have no idea what I was made for in that sense, but I can tell you this. I love telling people about Christ and him crucified for our sins. But I don't think that's a specific calling on my life. I think that's what all Christians are called to do. Proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. We find in Acts the apostles continue giving new names. If you read with me in Acts, let me give you a little backstory on this guy named Joseph here. Joseph was a rich man. He was wealthy. He was successful. And in those days, when when you were a um, when you were rich, being in the market, a rich businessman who traded in the market at the city gates, you had to be several things. You had to be greedy. You had to be cutthroat. You had to stomp on people to get ahead. You had to be everything that everybody hated to become rich. Something happened. Something happened between Jesus being born and Acts 4 that changed his life. He became a different person. He became a different identity. And we read here, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. Sometime between Jesus coming, his life was changed, and he no longer was called Joseph, but Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was no longer that rich, shrewd, cutthroat businessman, but became a son of encouragement. He sold fields. He sold what he had. Could it possibly be that Joseph was confronted with his sins and was told of the amazing good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross to redeem one even as wicked as him? even as wicked as me, even as wicked as you, and that God granted him repentance, gave him faith, raised him from the dead, quickened his spirit, changed his heart of stone into a heart of flesh, and began producing in his life the true fruits of the Holy Spirit. Could it be that? Or was it that Well, you know, he dug down deep and found something special inside of himself. And he was self-actualized. Yeah, I don't think so. He had, he sold his possessions and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, I want to get in on this. My life was changed. I want to give my resources. I want to give my gifts. I want to give my talents to further your kingdom, further Jesus' kingdom. I want in on this. 
My question today is, have you heard your new name? Okay, I want to point something out here. Uh, Barnabas didn't give money so that he can get in on it. He gave his, he sold the field and gave his money because he was already in on it. You see the difference? And now we've just got the question from here from this pastor. Have you heard your new name yet? Seriously? Have I heard my new name yet? This is an ego puffing up delusions of grandeur self-focused sermon hmm. bcc brick city community church is a place where you can hear your new name brick city community church is a place where jesus is here and he can speak to you and he will tell you that you are no longer an adulterer or you are no longer uh, a stupid or dumb or an addict or or whatever the names have been attached to you which is this the biblical gospel or is this a different gospel this isn't the biblical gospel at all this is a different good news a foreign good news that's not based in the scriptures. It has some weird kind of way in which it sort of kind of looks like the the real gospel, but it isn't. This is a false gospel. But you are loved. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. That God loves you. He has a purpose for your life. You know, my favorite place, my my favorite character in Heroes is Hero... Nakamura because he when he finds out that he has a special gift, when he has a talent and ability, he flings himself right into it. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't secretly hold it for his, his own personal gain. He says there, a superhero never uses it for personal gain. He just flings himself into his call. He listens. He realizes that his name and his gift are the same thing. Your name, the, God, the name that Jesus Christ gives you, your new name, it's intertwined with your gifts. And God gives you those gifts. He gives you the name and then He gives you the gifts to accomplish the purpose that He has for your life. Read with me in Romans. It says, For God's gifts and His call are irre- irrevocable. His gifts and His call are intertwined and they can't be taken away. I love What? Hang on, we're going to have to do some biblical work here. Okay, the text that he's quoting from, by the way, is found in Romans chapter 11. And what we're going to do is I'm going to back up and add some context. Again, how did he use this text? He said, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable, as if that is referring to God's special purpose for your life. God's special, the thing that he, the reason why you were created, the reason why he thought you up in the first place. That's not what this text is teaching. When you put it back in context, again, our three primary rules for biblical interpretation and interpreting it soundly are, are context, context, and context. So when we read Romans chapter 11, we're going to start at uh, verse 25 and listen carefully. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
as regards to, as re- regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards of election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once at were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they may also they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So the passage he was quoting, out of context, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's not about personal abilities or anything of that sort or the reason for which God made you. We're talking about the gifts and God, the calling of God as in regards to the gospel, mercy and the forgiveness of sins. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. We are hearing some supreme Bible twisting on the part of this purpose-driven pastor. love what it says here in the message. Look at this. God's gifts and call are under full warranty, never canceled, never rescinded. They're yours. He's given them to you. You have a name. Have you heard it yet? You have a new name that comes with gifts. Hero found out about that. Every hero must learn his purpose. I want you to watch this. Uh, no, this is not speaking in tongues. I just want to let you know this is Japanese. まだまだ序の口さ。Oh, this is so relevant. Oh, man. ここで覚えたの so what do you think? We should bring this guy up on pastoral malpractice charges? I'm thinking that's probably appropriate.
to find out what happens, you got to get the first season on DVD and watch it. Hero fig- okay, I want to point something out here. We've gotten far more in Japanese from the uh, the, mo- uh, the movie television series Heroes than we have actually from the Bible. Uh, the problem is uh, none of us knows Japanese. Well, there may be some Japanese. You know, actually, take it back. I have Japanese listeners in uh, Japan. Um, so those of you in Japan listening to Fighting for the Faith, I do apologize. And uh, I do understand that you are capable of understanding this. But to my American ears, and I've never studied Japanese, I couldn't tell you a thing about what it is that Hiro and Ando are discussing because I don't have the subtitles in front of me. Figures out that every... Hero must learn his purpose and then be tested and called. There is a reason I'm here. He realized that. When you understand your new name and you realize that your unique gifts are, are, are yours and that you're supposed to leverage them for the furtherance of God's kingdom, you can't help but feel like you did something heroic. Read with me in Psalms. This is one of the most awesome scriptures in the whole Bible. Psalm 139, you made me, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and and knit them together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. It's amazing to think about. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. You were there while I was being transformed in utter seclusion. You saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. Out of this scripture, I pulled. I want to point something out here. When he said that, uh, you know, you do what you were made to do, you that who can help but feel that you've done something heroic. <clears throat> Let me read to you the uh, words of our Lord from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, starting at verse 7. I read, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare some supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Yeah, that kind of takes the air right Pull out of that. Three blanks in your notes. Three truths about you. Number one, I was shaped for a purpose. Number one, you are a wretched sinner and rebel against God. You're not here by accident. You weren't born. You are lucky to be alive and that God hasn't struck you down because of your sinful wickedness. It's a miracle that he has still allowed you to be breathing the air that he created. Born in the time that you were to the parents that you were and the circumstances that you were by accident. God has a plan for your life. He's shaping you. Those experiences that happen to you, good and bad, God uses to shape you to the person you are. And it's for a reason. Number two, I am unique. Look at your neighbor and You are sinful just like everybody else. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one who seeks God. All have turned away and have become worthless. Your uniqueness is doo-doo. Say, you are unique. 
Every one of us have a unique thumbprint on our life. God has given us a unique thumbprint that is not like anyone else. There is nobody in here that is exactly alike. We have different lives. We have different looks. We have different abilities. We have different uh, uh, DNA. Everything about us, our experiences, everything is different. And number three, I am wonderfully complex. And all the husbands say, Amen. Right? There are two things every man needs to know about women. I don't know either one of them. Read with me in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12.4 says, God's various gifts are handed out everywhere, but they all originate in God's Spirit. Hold on there, Tex. Hang on a second here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What are our three rules again? Context, context, and context. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 1, we read, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord or God except for by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone to teach to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the spirit, the utterance of wisdom; to another, the, uh, to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit; to another, faith by the same spirit; to another, gifts of healing uh, by the one spirit; another, the working of miracles; to another, prophecy; to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits; to another, various kinds of tongues; to another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit. What are we talking about here? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are referring to specifically the gifts given by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the church. We're not talking about the gift of being a good athlete, the gift of being a uh, when it uh, the gift of knowing philosophy really well or working well with others. Nothing like that. We're talking about spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body. Now, I'm going to back this up so that you can hear what this guy is doing at this point. He's taking the word gift and misapplying it. Read with me in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12.4 says, God's various gifts are handed out everywhere, but they all originate in God's Spirit. God's various ministries are carried out everywhere, but they all originate in God's Spirit. God's various expressions of power are in action everywhere. But God himself is behind it all. Each person is given something to do that shows who God is. Everyone gets in on it. Uh, that's not what the text says. Again, it's spiritual gifts given by the Spirit for the building up of the church. How many is everyone? All of us. Everyone gets in on it. Everyone benefits. All kinds of things are handed out by the Spirit of God and to all kinds of people. Every single one of us have gifts. 
Every single one of us have that thumbprint. Every single one of us has that unique call on our life, and it's for a reason. That's why BCC works. That's why this church is, has uh, seen over 100% growth in the last two years. That's why this thing works. Is it because of the people up here on this stage? Is it because the messages that we preach? Absolutely not. Clearly. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, they're abominable. I've, I've, I've talked. There's uh, Pastor Bill Fuller's in the back. I guarantee you'll never see him run around in blue and red tights. I don't even have to ask him. I know because there's no superheroes around here. You want to know what makes it work? It's the people who are in here. The people who make this thing happen. Those guys up there who are making video happen. Look at Justin. He's pulled all his hair out trying to make the sound just the right level of loud every week. Hundreds of people are working together week in and week out, all during the week, volunteer to leverage collectively to leverage God's kingdom. Read Psalm 29. The Lord gives strength to God's people and the Lord blesses His people with peace. God is in it with us. God makes it happen. He's here. Everything that happens, it says... How does that verse support your thesis again? I don't see that at all. God did it. And we just get in on it. He's allowing us to participate. This is His place and His plan and He has called each of us to join our gifts together and leverage them for His kingdom. Guess what? If this is His plan, there isn't another one. God didn't make another plan. When He thought this world up, He didn't say, I'm going to put in a plan B just in case it doesn't work. This is it. Whose hero are you? What kind of heroic things have you done in your life? Whose life has changed because you were in it? There's so many people here today sitting beside you. Who Why are you pointing people to themselves rather than to Jesus Christ? And their heroic actions instead of His redeeming grace. His vicarious suffering for them on the cross. His redeeming rescue. Why are you pointing them to themselves rather than to Christ? This is not a Christian sermon. Who are unlikely heroes. Because they've, they've collectively leveraged God's kingdom for the furtherance of God's kingdom. They've leveraged their gifts together. You know, we have people in here who sit with screaming babies. And to those people who waited five more minutes and said, maybe this child will stop screaming in five more minutes because I really want their parents to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're my hero. When are they going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? We are 41 minutes, eight seconds into this thing called a sermon. I have yet to hear a clear pronouncement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've heard a different gospel. I've heard the gospel of purpose, but not the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those of you who are here because your kids have been so taken care of and, and they've w w awakened you at 6 a.m. To, to make you come. We've got kids 
who wake their kids up on Monday and say, can we skip school and go back to that church? For those who teach there, you're my hero. For those who make those kids want to come to church, you're my hero. For those who stand at the door and give a smile and hand a hot cup of coffee and and sign people up for their next steps at guest services and check in children at registration and do all the monotonous, mundane work that makes this place happen every week. You're my hero. I thank you for what you do. It's because of you that 30 people have chosen to start their journey to follow Christ just in the last month. Without you, that would never happen. They made a decision to start their journey. Hmm. You mean get on the rat wheel of self-righteousness. Got it. It's all of us taking our gifts, taking our abilities, taking our precious time and leveraging them together for the furtherance of God's kingdom. Some of you out there haven't heard your name yet. You don't know what that name is. You don't I don't even know what you're talking about. <sighs> I don't know what God has called you to do. You've been listening to things that you know is not your identity. You say, how do I find it? How do I find out? How do I get started? How can I put my gifts and leverage with someone else to make God's kingdom expand on this earth? We have a class tomorrow starting at 7 o'clock called Discovering My Shape. That is a five-week study where you get to... Oh, a purpose-driven product. This The shape thing, that is a purpose-driven knowledge product sold by uh, the purpose-driven CEO himself, uh, Rick Warren. So you're hearing what happens when Rick Warren's products get into a church. Lovely. Together with other people who are on the same journey as you and find out how God is uniquely... Uh, 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 thumbprinted you and put a put an identity on you and how you can use it how you can use it in in the church and in in god's kingdom i would encourage you if you if you want to find out how you've been shaped what gifts do you have how has god um, shaped you what is your temperament and how can god use it sign up for that guest services tomorrow seven o'clock just an hour and a half i i already know what my shape is pear I'm pear-shaped. Pear is a shape. Kind of skinny at the top, round at the in the middle. Yeah. Maybe you're here today and you have an answer to call. Maybe you've kicked the tires on Christianity so long that your toes hurt. You don't know how to get started. You don't know the... You don't... You say, you know what? There's got to be more. There's got to be more in my life than this mundane getting up, going to work, raising kids, and trying to build my portfolio. There's something else. You want to know what that is? Why would I want to purchase this form of Christianity that apparently I'm supposedly kicking the tires for? I mean, it sounds like a complete defective lemon this guy is selling. Every journey starts with a first step. Here at BCC, we've made that first step very easy. If if I'm talking about you, if you want to if you want to make that decision to start your journey to follow Christ, it's very easy. Anytime you're here, why would I make a decision to quote follow Christ after hearing this? Oh, oh, I know, because God wants to give me a new name, because I'm uniquely made. And notice he mentioned words like sinner and 
loser and dumb and things like that. And I don't want to be those things. I, I, I want to hear the name that God's given me. Notice he mentioned sin. He talked about how you're redeemed, but never connected any of the dots. How is it that God doesn't call us sinners anymore? Only those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith in Jesus Christ, given as a gift to the preaching of the gospel, are the ones whom God doesn't see them as a sinner any longer. They're no longer under the wrath of God because God's wrath has been propitiated by the blood of Jesus Christ himself shed on the cross for our sins. All who believe, all who believe, that's who it's for, all who believe. How has this sermon wanted to make one person, how how has this sermon even explained the gospel clearly enough that anyone would know about the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross? This is all a man-centered pablum sermon, self-actualization kind of stuff. All during the week. Uh, during a service, in between services, come up front, pick up one of these red bags. That's the start. That's the first step. A tour guide will meet. What? The first step in becoming a Christian is picking up a red bag? What? Meet you, introduce you, introduce themselves to you, and help you start on that journey. We have a process in place, very simple, very easy. Anybody can do it. If that's you, don't hesitate to do that. If you've been named something that's not you, you've been walking through life with an identity that you know is not what God thought of when He was thinking you up. You have to submit it to Him. And I would encourage you today Where in the Bible does it teach any of this stuff? By the way, this sermon is heavily influenced by Rick Warren's so-called gospel of purpose and the whole shape thing that, uh, that Saddleback sells. Again, this is an example of what happens when Rick Warren's Druckerite products get out into the churches. I'm going to pray for in a minute. I, would, I just encourage you just to say, God, I give up that identity. It's not mine anymore. I want to hear your call. I want to hear your name. I want purpose for my life. I want to know what it is. If anyone prays to God that they want purpose for their life, do they go from being a pagan to being somebody who is trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? I, I don't. I, I don't see any biblical evidence that would lend itself to that theory whatsoever. What do you think? And I believe that God's big enough to speak that to you and to set you free. Let's pray. Okay. I'm not going to sit through that guy's prayer. So there you have it. What'd you think? A purpose all about the hero within. I don't think this guy handled a single text correctly. I don't think he taught the biblical gospel at all. In fact, he offered us a competing counterfeit gospel complete with ripped-out-of-context proof texts, misapplications of God's Word, I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, then you know that these sermons are not an occasional aberration. 
These kinds of sermons are the norm in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches. We're not dealing with the gospel of Jesus Christ or Christian teaching at all. We're dealing with a false gospel. We're dealing with a competing gospel that masquerades as biblical Christianity and isn't. We're dealing with a new kind of salvation that saves nobody. We're dealing with a gospel and a message that focuses in on you and your delusions of grandeur, that feeds your self-love and your narcissism and leaves you dead in your trespasses and sins. We're dealing with sermons that send people to hell. need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important, in-your-face outreach to you as well as the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, click on the Join Our Crew button. We're somewhere north of the 50% mark in trying to get a 1,000 of our listeners to partner with us by joining the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. It is a mere $6.95 a month, and when you join, you get access to our Pirate Cove, growing treasure trove of theological, doctrinal, and apologetic resources that are Christ-centered and that will drive you deeper into a correct understanding, a biblical understanding, based on the historic Christian faith of God's word and sound biblical doctrine. Of course, if you'd like to donate a different amount, you can do so by clicking on the donate button and you can fill in the amount that way. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. So what would you think? Did you find the hero within? Hopefully not. Hopefully you heard what I was saying and you learned about the sinner that's inside, the sinner that you are and the Savior who died on the cross for all of your sins. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen. 